Homestyle Green, episode 85, Resilience versus Sustainability. G'day and welcome to another episode of Homestyle Green. This is the podcast all about inspiring people to make a better place to live. I am Matthew Cutler-Welsh, I'm the host of the show, and I like talking about sustainable homes, and hopefully you are someone who helps design or create sustainable homes, or you may be someone who's interested in creating a sustainable home for yourself, or maybe making an existing home that much more sustainable than it already is. Now, I'm on the road this week, and apologies for the audio quality of this show if it's a little bit different from what you might be used to. I've uh, I've brought some uh, portable uh, hardware with me, and it's great to be on the road. It's great to be traveling and uh, with family, and it also presents some challenges for sticking to the commitment of producing a podcast and getting it out there each week. So we're a little bit behind schedule this week, and I apologize for that but I am committed to getting a show out to you this week. And there have been a couple of topical events of the last week, not least of which was the power cut in Auckland. Now, there was a fire early in the morning of um, Sunday or Saturday night and woke up to a very, very quiet, dark morning on Sunday morning. Turns out a fire in a substation had taken out the power to around about 85,000 houses in Auckland, and it wasn't going to be a short fix to get all those houses back online. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about that and what that means in terms of resilience and where the overlap is between resilience and sustainability. Before we get into that, though, i uh, got a couple of announcements to make. One is that I did actually have a very nice day out of Auckland, uh, Auckland Central that is, on Sunday. I took part as a guide in, on the Tread Lightly Tour over on Waiheke Island and fantastic event, done a really good job of organising EcoFest Waiheke this year and I was uh, honoured to be asked to guide um, one of these tours. They had four separate tours going and looking at some of the eco houses on the island. So we on this particular tour, looked at four relatively, they called it the urban tour, and, and um, they were sort of semi-urban, semi-rural, and uh, four great examples, all completely different, both in design and in the personality of the owners and the people, but fantastic uh, occasion and a great opportunity to go and see what people have accomplished in their homes and their gardens as well. And I'm hoping to interview some of those people that we talked to and visited because they've all got great stories to tell and I hope that the learning can be shared from those projects. Also last week I was very excited to attend an event all about slab edge insulation and for those that have listened to any of my episodes before will know that that's a bit of a pet topic of mine uh, is to get concrete slabs insulated properly insulated at all but definitely insulated better and the way to do that is to put at least insulation around the edge of the slab so it was very refreshing for me and very exciting to be at an event 
that was organised by the New Zealand Green Building Council and uh, sponsored by brands. And at this event, there were at least three, might have been four companies that have a solution now for providing a product that will insulate the edge of a slab very well. And they were essentially pitching their product to a room full of designers and architects. So going in the industry from a place where there were a lot of people scratching their heads thinking, why would you want to do this? And then secondly, how can I do it? The tables have turned to now suppliers pitching and selling their wares. And it was great to see 30 or 40 odd designers there hungry for this information and wanting to find out more. So very, very exciting. And I get a sense that there's a real change there in the market and people really wanting to see that the stuff isn't new internationally. A lot of people have been doing slabs this way and insulating properly for 10, 20 years overseas. And New Zealand, Australia is just kind of catching on to that. And of course, Nudora was one of them and they are one of the sponsors of this show. They help bring us this show to you freely on a weekly basis. So I'm very grateful for Nudora in general, but also grateful that they're now available in New Zealand and are providing just one solution for, and a very good solution that is, to insulating the edge of a slab. And there's so many different permutations of their product. They've kind of thought of everything. There were lots of questions thrown at Jeremy uh, during the session, and he was able to answer all of those and, and pretty much point to where the the parent company from Canada has already generally gone down the path and probably got a solution for most cases, depending on what cladding they're using or the configuration of the floor, all sorts of different options there. Might get Jeremy back on the show uh, on the show at some stage to follow up from the the conversation that we have had with Nadora from their CEO who was visiting New Zealand earlier this year. But it'll be good to get an update from the team here. If you want to find out more information from Nadora, though, head over to www.energyefficientbuilding.co.nz, or you can check out their main site nadora.com. So on with today's show, actually no, sorry, just before we do dive into today's show, I am not going to get around to fully answering some feedback, but I do want to acknowledge some great feedback from last week's episode. Always a real pleasure to receive any sorts of comments. Um, Of course, I love positive comments and uh, did get some of those, which is excellent. I really love that. And it's it's hard um, sticking to the commitment. I like I mentioned at the top, I am committed to getting this out, and sometimes that it's hard. You know, it's I'm a I'm away with with my family, and it would be easy to say oh, I'll just let one let it pass for this week. But hearing stories of people driving and listening to the show and getting some useful information, the odd pearl of wisdom, really makes it all worth it. So if if that's you, if you find any useful gem in this, do let me know because I really, really appreciate that. But I also really appreciate um, some other comments. Uh, Quite quite rightly, I have to say, um, pulled up a couple of issues with some of the things that I might have mentioned about moisture in a previous episode. I will address those because I think they're great uh, topics to discuss in a bit more detail. So just want to acknowledge that feedback and apologize. I'm not going to have a 
full response in this episode, but maybe in a future episode we will get stuck into those and have a bit of a discussion. Alrighty, now, resilience. What is the difference between resilience and sustainability? And does it really matter? So these are a couple of the issues I've been thinking, I've been thinking about probably since February 2011 when we basically became refugees in our own city in Christchurch after the big Christchurch earthquakes. On the 23rd of February 2011, we woke up having been cut off from power, fresh water and sewerage uh, the previous day and it was kind of a deja vu because we'd all experienced, most of Christchurch had experienced that the previous September in the first earthquake um, but we got a sense that this time it was going to be a bit more permanent, a bit more bit more substantial damage and uh, we'd already know that a lot, many people had already paid the ultimate price in that February earthquake. So a lot of the talk very quickly turned to resilience. And that got me thinking because I may have told this story before, but basically the, the night of the earthquake in Christchurch, on, on the night of February 22nd, it actually rained in Christchurch. And something that I will always remember is seeing or hearing, because we didn't have a TV, I later saw them once we... Um, got to Wellington and I did see the news on the TV, saw images of people crowding around water tankers to get water. And they were quite desperate. And it kind of reminded me of images you see in sort of war-torn countries and and uh, less developed countries where people are queuing up for potable drinking water. And it struck me as quite strange and quite detached from... Nature. How did we get to the point where 12 hours after light rain, nobody had any water? And I guess I was particularly sensitive to that because in our street and the neighbours around our house, we did have water. And the reason that we had water is because our house had some rainwater barrels connected to our downpipes. And the reason that we had those barrels connected to our rainwater downpipes was because that a couple of years prior, my dad and I had installed some rainwater harvesting barrels at our property. And in turn, the reason that we did that was because I grew up in Adelaide, which is in South Australia, and South Australia is the driest state in the driest continent on the earth. Very, very dry. Very little rainfall on on average. And it's very common for people to harvest rainwater. People are generally pretty sensitive to water usage, not least because we, um, excuse me, there's a there's a phone call. Now, one of the joys of having a uh, doing a mobile broadcast. Apologies for that. So, I was brought up in Australia and was very sensitive to water. Hence, we had some rainwater barrels, and I installed some rainwater collection facilities at our house and as a result of that we had these barrels we were able to quickly um, reattach those because they were they were they were unattached at the time so we were just under renovation but we were able to distribute those around the a couple of houses on the night of the 22nd and the next day we had water 
And this really has stayed with me, I think, um, because as Christchurch started to get its um, get get its feet back again and thinking about redesign, this term resilience kept popping up, kind of alongside green city and sustainable city and and eco and all those sorts of green type thinking. And I think for a while there, the word resilience kind of replaced the word sustainability as the catchphrase. It kind of got a bit more trendy, and I think there are a few reasons for that. I don't know if it particularly matters which one is used. I think that there is a difference. I think sustainability is more a long-term and on a continuum of doing less bad through to actually doing some good for the environment. And sustainability is pretty much the, the midpoint of that. It's kind of the, the threshold of where you're not necessarily having a negative impact on the environment, but you're not really having a positive impact either. You're just using resources in a sustainable manner, in, a, in an ongoing, maintainable state that allows the capacity of the system that you're relying on to continue to be used for future generations. That's the kind of standard thinking about what sustainability is. So I think of it as a as a long-term um, way of thinking. In fact, I, I looked over on thenatureofcities.com and they have an interesting article about sustainability versus resilience. And their definition of sustainability there is to manage resources in a way that guarantees welfare and promotes equity of current and future generations. And I think that that sums it up quite nicely. So resilience, on the other hand, the same article in thenatureofcities.com goes on to say uh, that it's basically the capacity of a system to absorb a disturbance. So think of resilience more of um, bouncing back, if you like versus just maintaining the status quo. I don't think, like I said, that it necessarily matters too much. There there are some semantics there. There's definitely some overlap. But here's the thing. If we want if our ultimate goal is to be more sustainable, and I think it's that is our short-term goal is to be more sustainable. Ultimately we want to move beyond sustainability, but let's go with sustainability for now. If that doesn't spin your wheels or, more importantly, your client's wheels, if you're a designer or an architect, they may be more um, amenable to being resilient because we often fear the loss of something more than we do gaining something else, if that makes sense. So we fear the loss of well, what if the power goes out is, is often, often um, thought of or uh, you know, a lot of people have gas cooking because they think, well, what if the power goes out? I won't be able to cook. Um, what if the water gets cut off? You know, that's a really good reason to install rainwater tanks. If this type of thinking is then results in people doing things like installing rainwater tanks and solar panels on their roof, then that's got to be a good thing. So if short-term thinking around being more resilient also makes us more sustainable, then I think that's a great thing. The reason why this all came to uh, 
to head again just recently on the weekend was because we in fact have solar panels now on our roof in Auckland. And we were a very good demonstration, I think, of resilience around power supply. Now, there are some details of that that are specific to that installation because we, like my interview with um, Simon McKenzie, the CEO of Vector, uh, a few episodes ago, that installation, that PV installation is special because it has batteries. And a typical photovoltaic installation on a roof won't help you out with a during a power cut because the inverter which converts the DC generated power from those panels to useful AC power that uh, that inverter needs to see some current in the grid that it's connected to in order for it to work and there's a very good reason for that it's basically because well there's a safety um a safety catch in there because if the lines company in this case vector is working on a portion of their grid and they turn it off so they can work it on then they they want to know that that portion is off and if you've got a few houses generating into that grid then they send some linesmen up to work on the lines then those lines are going to be live and just because we're generating a you know, that might seem like a, a small amount of electricity from some uh, solar panels on the roof, we can actually generate some substantial current through there. So to keep their linesmen safe and to maintain the control that they need of their lines, then they want to know that those are off when they're off. And that's one of the reasons why a, a typical grid-tied uh, PV installation won't actually work during a power cut. But the system that Vector used during their pilot program and that we have on our roof is a Sunverge system which has about 6 kilowatt hours worth of lithium-ion battery storage which is integrated in a, in a big grey box that sits in our garage alongside the inverter and there's a computer in there which does some um, sort of control of the whole system and some communication bits and pieces which connect it to the internet so that they can see what's going on and, and we can also see what's going in and what's going out. So that makes our system a little bit different from the typical system and it also makes our system very resilient because uh, come the morning of Sunday, the sun came up and things started to work in our house again. And they worked all day and... Then the sun went down and our lights continued to stay on. Now we were able to maintain power in our house. We were we we turned off what we didn't need, so we we weren't using any heating. We just had a few lights running, but the fridge was back on, the freezer was on. We were able to charge all our mobile devices. At that time, the internet was working as well, so we could have the modem turned on, and, and we were online. And we were basically an island of light and power and internet, which is arguably almost as important as power these days, among a very dark and quiet sea of blackout in our neighbourhood. And it was a fascinating to experience that and feel quite privileged and feel very fortunate to have that level of resilience kind of as a result of my desire to be a little bit more sustainable. 
that's that's pretty much the bulk of what I wanted to talk about today was just that convergence of sustainability and resilience. And I think um, there are some other key points about resilience. One one concept that um, we we often talked about when we were working in the outdoors was was food, water, shelter, and we'd always pack accordingly for having enough food, some uh, water, or at least the ability to collect water and the ability to shelter ourselves from the elements. And those basic principles are what we, we rely on every single day, and we rely on those those aspects from our homes, from our houses that we design, we build, and that we live in. It comes down to food, the provision of food or storage of food, uh, the, the provision of water, and again, the storage of water, and the provision of shelter. So don't forget those three very basic concepts when you're planning resilience, either on a um, an, an emergency point of view, so have some having some some spare food, some spare water around, and those should be a, a little tip is to set a, a date, perhaps around uh, spring and autumn when you or daylight savings is a really good time to pull out all that spare food and check the dates, check that it's all still staying watertight, throw out anything that's way past its use-by and and maybe replenish those supplies. Um, If you don't have a spare supply of food and water and you live anywhere in New Zealand, then I, having been through a natural disaster ourselves, then I highly recommend getting organised and um, investing uh, a couple of hundred dollars more in your next grocery shop, and and get some plastic containers and put some put put aside some food because you only have to use it once, and only you only have to need it once to be very very grateful for having it. Um, a couple of other tips just before I, before I close off, specifically relating to that, food, water, shelter. Cycle those out and check them every six months. Have some shelter and that, and make sure that includes a tarp or uh, a tent or and also things like batteries and maybe some emergency provisions for um, heating up some water. So whether that's a, a, a small portable stove or a camp cooker, it's great to have a, bar- a gas barbecue, but um, you also need to be prepared to move as well if you can't um, rely on, on staying at, at your house. But also at the fourth and fifth points I would add to food, water, shelter. Number four, I would say have a plan. And uh, a friend of ours uh, in in Auckland, I remember talking with him one day, they, they don't just have smoke alarms in their house, but with their kids they also run through an escape plan for their house. And this is pretty common practice for an office or a school. They have uh, a school, sorry, they have fire drills. But when was the last time you had a fire drill with your family? Would you know who was going to do what in the event that you had to evacuate your house? Now, I guess because of our training in the outdoors, when the earthquake struck in Christchurch, we knew exactly who was going to pick up which child and where we were going to go. It was 3 o'clock in the morning and we were stumbling around in the dark, but we went on to autopilot and we kind of knew what to do and that was largely because we had actually talked about it beforehand we hadn't gone so far as practicing it in that case but now with with children who can be a little bit more self-sufficient 
it would be a very good idea for us to to do a bit of a drill and practice. And you might find things that might not work, like a locked door and um, that might be part of your escape route. How do you overcome that? And could your children know how to how to get it, how to unlock that door, or do they need a, an alternative route? So that would be number four. And number five is community. How well do you know your neighbours? I tell you, there was nothing like a natural disaster for getting to know your neighbours uh, really, really well. And that's another thing that contributed to us being pretty well off on the 23rd of February in 2011. It wasn't too bad. We all knew each other pretty well. In fact, we were having a barbecue together just as a street, as a as a neighbourhood the day before, as a social uh, event. And then it turned out the day after we were having another street barbecue, more as a survival event. But that came very naturally to us. We had very good relationship with all our neighbours, and we knew who had what, and we were all very willing to pitch in and help each other. But it's great to build those relationships before they are needed. So they're my hot tips for how to be resilient. Food, water, shelter, have a plan and get a good sense of community with your neighbours. But the other concepts uh, that I just wanted to to talk about today were really about the, the marketing opportunity that I think resilience is for sustainability. And if resilience is something that means that you can add things like rainwater tanks and solar panels into your into the design of your home, then I think that's a great thing. But also understand that sustainability is a great objective, but it's also part of a spectrum. Well, that's it for today. Uh, I hope you found something useful in that. Love to hear your thoughts on uh, sustainability and resilience as as concepts, and also any other tips. What uh, other tips you got out there for incorporating some form of resilience into your uh, into your home or into the, your designs? And is it important? What is one of them more important than the other? Perhaps you have some ideas on that. Is 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 resilience more important than sustainability or, or vice versa? Thank you very much for listening to the show and thanks again to our lovely sponsor, Nudora. Go check them out, www.energyefficientbuilding.co.nz. You can check out the show notes of this episode at homestylegreen.com slash 85. I will be back uh, again next week and hoping to line up some, uh, get back uh, into some interviews very soon as well. And just before I go, make sure if you haven't already, check out my good friend Caesar Abid. He's got a great Kickstarter campaign going at the moment. If you're building or designing a house, then you are embarking on a project. And by virtue of that, you need some good project management. He's Kickstarter campaign can be found at pmforthemasses.com. Check him out. He's got a great video there, and I would highly recommend supporting because he's got some great deals as part of that Kickstarter campaign. You can basically pre-order his awesome project management book, which will be coming out uh, shortly after his campaign finishes. 
That's enough for me. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Matthew Cutler-Welsh and this is Homestyle Green. Now go make a better place to live.